As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children. And it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast. So Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. It was unbelievable. Absolutely unbelievable that crime could... 
get to the level it did in the area, and nobody really seemed to care. We had two uh, restaurants on the east side of Cabramatta that were retailing heroin. They didn't sell food, all they sold was heroin. Uh, the overdose levels on the streets increased more and more. More and more sirens of ambulances coming to treat users overdosing, and more and more deaths on the street as well, so it was becoming commonplace to have bodies around the town. No one was really there to, to champion the cause for the community. Nobody was there to say, listen, okay, we understand, we'll do something about it. Alan Leake is a retired member of the New South Wales Police Service, in which he served for 34 years. Like most members of his generation, Alan didn't complete high school, but his natural curiosity has led him to a lifetime of study and writing in the field of criminology, including a stint at the FBI's Academy in Quantico, Virginia. Allen's won awards for service, including the prestigious Peter Mitchell Award for Outstanding Performance in a Murder Investigation, and published several books, which you can find more information about in the show notes to this episode. In the early 1990s, Alan Leake was rewarded for his excellence in management when he was made the head copper in Cabramatta. It was, at the time, the largest heroin distribution point in the country, a growing political flashpoint and spiralling ever faster out of control. The unique set of challenges that beset Cabramatta in Sydney from the late 1980s created a criminal and cultural misery unlike anything else Australia had seen at the time, and it was up to Alan to rally his troops and to pull the divided and traumatised community together behind them. As you'll learn, he was definitely an inspired choice for the job because if there are two things Alan Leake takes joy in, they are policing and learning about different cultures. So I left school at 15. I had a lot of picking up to do and I didn't have confidence in myself. I know I knew I wanted to do so. I considered law and I thought, no, no, I can't do that. I can't do that. And I met a man who was a teacher at a private school and his, his daughter's house had been broken into. And uh, I talked to him about it and he said, you can do it. And how do you know that? And he said, I can tell you can do it. And he said, uh, matter of fact, I'm going up to Bathurst where it was the, the campus was. He said, I'm going up to, there for a wedding next weekend, get your application and I'll drop it in for you. And I thought, oh, Jesus. And he did. And I was accepted. So there it started. And I went there. I went, I went there for an orientation weekend and it was just mind-blowingly beautiful. It was a beautiful weather. And I stood out there in the sun and I thought, this is what it's about. This is what education is about. I love this, you know, because it wasn't rote. A lot of guys went through and did it, and it didn't matter whether you went through with C's or, or A's, if you did it, you, you've done it. So therefore you've got a, a bit of credentialism operating for you. But I applied it to my working day, and that was the difference. That's what you learnt. You learnt a trade so that you can go and do the job properly. What year did you arrive in Cabramatta? Permanently, I went there in 91. It was part of my area uh, when I worked at the uh, district that covered it uh, and other stations as well. So I was there as a staff officer intelligence and I, so I was very aware of it. I was an inspector at uh, the district office as, an in, uh, as a staff officer and then I uh, was promoted into that job at Cabramatta. I won that job actually at interview and uh, that, was, that carried another rank, a chief inspector's rank. Would you say it was sort of early days in the Cabramatta, I'd call it a crisis, what developed into a crisis in 1990, 91, sort of early days, wasn't it? No, it, 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 
there'd been a, a challenging area before that, for a long while before that, but it was starting to get some violent crime well before my time there, and I was very fortunate to know about that because of where I'd worked in the, in the headquarters. And I knew of the people there, and I knew that they had a very, very good detective office, a very good beat police office, and um, you know, it was a terrific team of people that I would go and inherit. But it was uh, right from the start, it was under-resourced. When I went there, for instance, I think I had 61 people to cover in that area, which was the most intense heroin distribution area in Australia. Already by that uh, time? Oh, yeah, and 19 of that 61 were probationary constables with less than a year's service. Because the point has been made very many times and very clearly in retrospect that when Malcolm Fraser made the decision to accept refugees from Vietnam into Australia, that was a revolution. It was a, a political revolution, but there wasn't a lot of really sort of grassroots work after that put into the communities that these people moved into. There wasn't a yep. lot of assistance in um, helping those people learn the language, for example, there wasn't a lot of assistance given to then state governments and local councils in the fundamentals of assisting those people to move into Australia. Yeah, they were left stranded a bit and uh, there were efforts made, but there were there could have been better. It could have been a lot better. When you took over the station, was that your job? Did you become the boss of Cabramatta Station in 1991? Yes. Yeah, Patrol Commander it was called, yeah. So much responsibility, and if not before, the media was certainly becoming aware of and becoming very interested in an idea that Asians, in adverted commas, were becoming problematic in Sydney and that there were crime gangs, it was a heroin hub, that they weren't assimilating, it was a problem. Mm -hmm. So you, you were under a lot of pressure. And I think people forget a lot of the time too that you're in a very political position in, in that sort of job because very. you yeah you mm. answer to a politician who wants to be re-elected well i didn't answer to him but um uh he was uh, my local member i he thought i did but i didn't <laughs> and i wouldn't the the political problem wasn't ours i wasn't too concerned about that what i was concerned about was the racist attacks on my community and the focus on vietnam yes there was a lot of vietnamese people there there's a lot of chinese people from vietnam there's a lot of lao cambodian Hmong, nung you know, South, South American people, all sorts of nationalities and, and uh, ethnic groupings. So the first thing I had to battle was that all my police had to go and learn Vietnamese. Mm. But you also had a problem in that the Vietnamese community had a very different attitudes, and this is common with refugee communities. They had a very different relationship with police in their home country. Yes. I mean, we police in our society by consent. We don't wield a big stick, we gain the consent of the public to police them. And uh, Vietnamese had seen their police shooting people, executing people in the street. Yeah. And th th the first question they would ask, a lot of, not just Vietnamese, but a lot of people in the English-speaking class, the English language classes, the, when my constables would go there and talk, the, they'd be rigged up, full uniform, you know, gun. And they, the first question was often, what can you be shot for? And that led me to think, well, right, I, I, had, a, I had the discretion as, a, as an officer not to wear a firearm, and I chose on most occasions not to wear a firearm, and particularly when I was going to their functions, and there were many of them. There were several a week, every week, mm. and, uh, or even just to walk in the street. I, I didn't wear a firearm. Because the gangs did. The gangs had a lot of firearms in Cabramatta in those days. There were shootings in the street. Yeah, yeah, and machetes mm. and things, yeah. But they, the funny thing is that they respected police and they respected teachers. It's 
no coincidence, I guess, that the the major gang or maybe the first gang that sort of grew out of the area of Cabramatta, the 5T gang, I read the translations, roughly translated what 5T was, it stood for five words that started with T, I think, but they said it, it basically meant missing love. There is a lot of different things that people would say the 5T means, but the 5T actually means doing your tilt and tongue. It actually, that actually means young age missing without love, missing true love or missing love from the family. It could be anything, but with a name like that, you can understand that everybody who doesn't, who feels like they're not loved would actually be running towards this 5T. Yeah, it was a token to bind young people who were disenfranchised and caught in a, a cultural bind. They were often rejected by family because they wouldn't toe the line with cultural mores. And, and they certainly weren't feeling a lot of love from the broader community, let's be honest. Yeah, and it was the same with previous uh, intakes since the Second War, you know, yeah. Italians and other uh, Greeks and whatever, they all had similar problems with their kids coming to a new culture and uh, because they became ready acolytes for drug distribution. The, the unemployment rate, I can't remember the figures now, but I know they were in the 20%. Well, that's interesting you bring that up because I remember when the African gang story was huge in Melbourne, people would make the point that, hang on a minute, these snatch and grabs and things that are happening at, at jewellery shops, that the accusation was that the younger African men were actually working for more organised crime gangs that were, certainly weren't of African origin. And so it was that idea that these disenfranchised youth become, you know, a fertile Acolytes, yeah, as you say, yep. fodder, yep. yeah. Yep, and it's probably right. And, and I, I cringed. I mean, I've been a long while out of it, but I cringed when I saw all that African discourse in uh, Victoria and I, and I thought, oh, God, I've been down this road before. And mm. we had uh, a very high level of um, homeless kids in the area. And as I said, unemployment in, amongst young people was very high. And uh, they'd been separated from family or sometimes they hadn't come out with family. And uh, I remember the youth workers in the area had, distributed sleeping bags to the shopkeepers to put in the back of their shops, like in the maybe an annex or something in the back of the shop, so they had somewhere to sleep. I think in the local government area, I think from memory, it was something like 600 people sleeping rough. So it was a, a terribly disadvantaged. We set up, with the Christadelphian church, we set up a breakfast at the local school uh, for kids to feed the kids breakfast because they didn't get breakfast because their family went off early to work in the sweatshops, you know, the, so the kids wouldn't be fed. Despite all of that, it was a wonderful community. I mean, the focus was always on the CBD and, and the doings around there, but the community itself, it was always a wonderful community because they, they, they lived cheek by jowl and they cohabited the area in peace, by and large, the, the, most of the people they were they would, and I had old Anglo Australians living in the area who loved them. They loved having them as neighbours, particularly the elderly, because the people used the, the Asian people used to look after them. And I've had the the media come out and try and uh, stir it up. They'd, they'd interview um, you know, old time Aussies that lived in the area and. Uh, try to get them, they'd try and ask them the questions that are going to lead to a, a, a nasty answer, they didn't fall for it. They, 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 and they weren't wise to it even, I suppose. They just very blatantly said, no, no, they're all right. They're, 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 he's my neighbour. I'm my next-door neighbour's Vietnamese. He's a terrific bloke. One thing that I always remember was that there was very little graffiti in the place, very little malicious damage. They respected property. 
and yet they'd go out and rip chains off people, gold chains, generally their own. Not they wouldn't touch white people, but they. But that was the, the, the disenfranchised kids. Whoever was running the the drug trade knew that that was a, a place where people were going to come and get it, and that was certainly the case. And then the the media would ask me, "What are you doing about it?" And I said, "Well, I've got." dozens of roads coming in. I've got a railway coming in. I've got dozens of roads coming in. I don't have a port. I don't have an airport. How do I stop it? We, we, we addressed it in another way. And uh, I noticed there's a bit of discussion about this lately, about uh, enforcement. I was driven by a, a 1980s study done by the Bureau of Crime Stats and Research. I think it was Ian Dobinson and, and somebody else on buying and selling heroin. And uh, I... Uh, focused on the street sellers, street levels. That's, what, that's all we were resourced to do anyway. Yeah. And very rarely did we go to a next level, but we'd concentrate on the street level and we, we clogged the courts, clogged the uh, youth attention centres with, with detainees. And they would say to me, why are you attacking at this level? And I said, well, look, you're, you're in the media. If, if, if I put police in front of every news agency in the local government area and stop them selling Rupert Murdoch's papers... How long before I get a complaint from the top? By attacking there, you are attacking the, the distribution. That's all we can do. And occasionally you'd get up a little bit further, but that was all we could do. And it was, um, no, nothing's going to be successful, but it was, it, it kept the streets reasonably calm. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't to punish the kids, but it was to make an impact. And the juvenile detention centres were bursting at the seams. Not what we wanted. But, I mean, if they had got out, they'd be back stealing again. So you had to make an impact. We did that not for any moralistic reason. We did it to attack them at their income level, where they were getting their income. And they complained bitterly about it. Because I remember you telling me that you had people, when you say, you know, street dealers, I mean, they were dealing on the literal street, but also out of news agents, weren't they? Out of restaurants, yeah. out of shops. As soon as they'd open up, they'd go into the back of a shop and start to deal. Yeah, Railway station, people wait for the train to come in. People are poor off the train, come and score. It's natural. I mean, they're going to do that. They've got to go somewhere to get it. And, of course, what they were doing, that was another study that we're interested in, but it never seemed to be pursued, that, that, uh, that polydrug use was a big problem, not the, not the purity of the heroin. So they'd wait around. They'd be at the pub. They'd have a few sherbets and they'd uh, maybe a bit of smoke or something else. And when they got the gear in, they, they'd inject that and, bang, they're dead. Or comatose and Narcan would be administered, they'd jump up, but they wouldn't jump up fit and healthy. They, they had organ damage, they had limb damage and whatever. And that was an unknown number to us, but the, the deaths weren't. And we were getting around 20 young people dying behind shops in toilet blocks a year. And I used to say to them, if I had that many motor vehicle accident deaths in a year, there'd be hell to pay. But nobody gives us stuff. Oh, they're just junkies, you know? And I said, they're not. They're not junkies. They're somebody's kid, somebody's partner, somebody's wife, somebody's husband, you know, somebody's father. And you just can't get through to people. I mean, there's still, still that attitude now. It doesn't matter, you know, they're only junkies. I made myself very unpopular by suggesting that we have a needle exchange program there, and uh, like they had in the cross, and specific to the needs of that community, even you know, language-wise and culturally. And, I mean, the, the community itself weren't happy about it. And, uh, and of course, the media weren't happy about me saying it. Well, it's the constant argument that it will attract more junkies. But Oh, yeah, well, it's, which has been proven to be erroneous. Yeah. The, the changes started to come with um, 
the realisation that the one-size-fits-all model that headquarters were imposing on us all wasn't suitable. And how they never realised that's got me tossed. It, it was, you know, uh, they were talking to me about car... My car theft rate in Cabramatta was very low. My malicious damage incidents were almost non-existent, but we still had to report on them. But when it came to heroin distribution, it wasn't one of the criteria that we had to report on. For your crime stats, for your, like, quarterly crime yeah, stats. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah. And, and, and I say that, well, everything here is connected to heroin. Everything that happens here is connected to heroin. And uh, didn't get through some foggy brains out there. And, uh, I mean, those people were moved on, of course, eventually uh, by inquiries. I mean, I gave evidence to the parliamentary inquiry into the policing at Cabramatta after I'd retired, so I was free to speak. Things changed a lot after that. Um, with the findings of that, that Commission of Inquiry. Coming up on Australian True Crime, another terrible first for Cabramatta. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. John Newman, who was actually a Labor politician who, who sounded a lot like a coalition politician today, but he was the <laughs> Labor man at the time. He was saying things like, I think they should be deported and sent back to the jungle of Vietnam where they belong if they're criminals. The Vietnamese gangs have sparked a row in the community with the local member calling for the deportation of Asians convicted of serious crimes. The Asian gangs involved don't fear our laws, but there's one thing that they do fear, and that's possible deportation back to the jungles of Vietnam, because that's where, frankly, they belong. So for the media, there was a lot of juice. Yeah, and you couldn't tell them that he'd had a conviction as a juvenile himself and uh, he wasn't sent back to uh, Serbia. No. Uh, you know, and it was just so hypocritical of him to do that. And he was a populist. And, uh, well, he wasn't a populist in the sense that he became popular. He was, he was popular because of his politics mm. in that particular area. It was a very strong Labor area. 
it wasn't helping any of the issues, any of the problems that were actually happening for no, the community. No, he claimed that, you know, he, he wanted to uh, <laughs> highlight the gangs for political advantage and, and talk about them. At the same time, he was trying to get a tourism body going and he invited me onto the, onto the committee. And uh, he kept this mantra up about the, the crime and the young people and, you know, what they were doing and whatever. And I said, look, this doesn't help tourism. What, what are you... How, do, how are we going to work this out? We're going to have to tone it down, John. It's, it, you can't expect people to come out here if they think they're going to get their jewellery ripped off or, or, or knocked over. Mm. And uh, without any vote, without any uh, agenda, without any minutes, uh, I was dismissed from the committee. <laughs> <laughs> and I, 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 was glad, I was glad to go, but the, that's how he operated. And so he was, uh, he was clumsy. And he looked for the. He was. He wanted to be in the newspaper all the time. That's what politicians need to do. And but it's good if they can use it for a good purpose. You know, they're two very extreme characters. You've got operating at once. You've got Newman, and then you've got uh, Fung No, who is the the local guy who's sort of challenging, trying to challenge Newman. What were his kind of platforms? What was his political position? He was the self-nominated representative, was he, of the of the local Vietnamese community? He, he stood. Uh, he was a councillor, Fairfield Council, and he mm. he stood as an independent, I think, against Newman. And and there was animosity between. There was they, they were they were sworn enemies, for, particularly on John's part. He he hated Fung, and Fung was a slippery character. But it seemed like they were sort of squabbling for the uh, affections of of the community, of the Vietnamese community. Would that be fair yeah, to well, say? Yeah, the Vietnamese community didn't trust Fung. Mm. They didn't like him at all. Even the people who came on the boat with him, they they, they didn't, they wouldn't talk to me about him, but they knew that there was a problem there. But he uh, he put the fear of, uh, into Vietnamese community members. They, uh, they didn't trust him at all and they feared him. So Newman, his uh, beef with him was, it was personal more than, you know, him trying to take the seat and so on. What do you remember of John Newman's murder in 94? Oh, fair bit. It was 9.30pm on Monday the 5th of September 1994. A New South Wales MP had just arrived home from a Labor Party branch meeting. Police emergency. Yeah, what's the problem? What's happening there? I've already called the triple O number on yeah, the neighbour. Yeah. The John Newman MP. Okay, has been yep, shot. I know. Within minutes, John Newman, a member of the New South Wales Parliament, was dead. It appears he's been shot twice. Could this be related to his stance uh, against Asian crime in the area? It could well be. It's possible. I've read a really interesting fact about that period of time. Um, within days of the murder, I think. The leader of the FT gang, 21-year-old Tri Minh Tran, became the prime suspect. And he'd been the leader of the gang since he was 14 years old. But he was also assassinated uh, on the 7th of August 1995, so just short of 12 months after uh, Newman was killed. And that on the afternoon of his funeral, Cabramatta shopkeepers closed their shops as a sign of respect, which is an honour that they had chosen not to give to John Newman. Did you see it coming to say, you know, I mean, did you ever imagine their beef, to put it that way, would get to that level? No. Uh, John, his office had been shot up from the street, you know, just a two-storey place on a corner and uh, had, had bullet holes in the window. His uh, car had been damaged. But there was so much angst there about him 
you wouldn't know what it was, you know, what is payback for what. And um, eventually we put surveillance cameras on his property and the driveway where he was eventually shot. But just before that, or not, not long before, I recall, we, we approached him and said, look, we need that equipment for another job. Nothing's happened in that, that period. Uh, and he, he okayed that. He was all right with that. And we took that, that equipment out, put it somewhere else. And uh, it wasn't too much after that that um, he was shot in the driveway of his, uh, of his home. People had splashed paint on the car and that sort of thing. Well, it doesn't indicate too much. But I think the, you can't pinpoint what those incidents were about because he was so aggressive. So then Fung No was pretty immediately suspected or gossip spread around the neighbourhood. Is that right? Certainly not as a shooter, but that he was involved somewhere. Well, he was put forward as a possible suspect, but so many were. Uh, We had lots and lots of suspects. Mm. I didn't get into that because I wasn't doing the investigation. It was uh, was Nick Caldos, actually, who did it. And um, he did the investigation, did an amazing job with that and um, got to the bottom of it. By 10pm, Fairfield councillor Fung No arrived. He too was briefly questioned before being charged. So intent on winning a seat in state parliament, Fung No, it's claimed, was willing to kill for it. No was granted $300,000 bail on the conditions he report daily to police, not go near any airport or contact any witnesses. The Fairfield councillor is accused of murdering Cabramatta MP John Newman September 94. A lot of people regard him as the leader of the Vietnamese community in Australia. But yeah, there were murmurs about it, but murmurs don't convict people. You need you need evidence, and that wasn't forthcoming. And I suppose looking backwards, it's it is hard to remember and hard to sort of recognise that there were so many people on the list, so many people to look at. That it was, and it started out as a really broad investigation. And it was, and. Uh, I think the, the figure was about 400 people were possible suspects at the, at the beginning because, uh, you know, there was just so many people that had crossed swords with him. Given the challenges that we talked about, about where you had to start with them, by the time you left, did you feel like you'd made some ground? I mean, I know that certainly after that, the, the murder of, of John Newman, there were conversations around, look, how hard it is to get the community to open up to police even then, that the community tended to look inward to solve its problems rather than to go to police with problems. Was that changing by the time you left? I, I think right from the start that was overblown. Okay. All communities in Australia are the same. They don't want to be involved. They don't want to dob in their neighbours. They don't want to dob in their mates. And it was overblown because they're Asian. Oh, they're, they're, they're alien to us, therefore they do this that we don't do. And it's rubbish because it's pretty widespread. We had interactions with uh, those communities and we had a, a, a secret line that people could ring and uh, our intelligence officer set that up and we had we had good flow of information coming in and that. So you've got to sort the fly shit from the pepper, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So to change commands at that point, it was certainly a long way from the job being done. What are your feelings in, in a moment like that? You've You've been doing a great job, which is why you were promoted to a different job. No, I don't think so. I, I think what happened, there was going to be change after the Royal Commission, the Wood Royal Commission. I'd given evidence to that. And uh, as a result of that, we had a police board at the time and they sent me out to an even higher position uh, to run a district as a chief superintendent. 
on a, as a statutory appointment. I never did take up that move that they wanted to put me to because I, I saw an opportunity to apply for another job at a, ne- at a higher level as a superintendent, which I won. Right. And so I took over the command of Newtown, inner city, Newtown. I think they expected Cabramatta to blow up in the Royal Commission. Right. And it didn't. It didn't. It absolutely didn't. And it was shown to be squeaky and everything was done down the line. Mm. And uh, we came at it with flying colours. Not that anyone appreciated it, but but that's the way it was. They were a terrific team of people. I had a a great team of people. Did they expect um, Cabramatta to blow up because... Drug squads so often do. Do you think? Well, we weren't a drug squad, but we no, did you have weren't, drug squads. No, you were, but you were so in the highest drug distribution area in the country. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And we had so we had a huge drug problem. We had prostitution, not 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 only a couple of brothels there, but run by gangsters. Um, we had uh, we had gambling dens. You had massive opportunities for officers to go rogue if they wanted yeah, to. Yeah, well, that, this is all the opportunity for corruption if you want if, yeah. if they were that way inclined, but they weren't. So. Uh, there was an expectation, and because once they started to delve into it, they found that we were we did some extraordinary things. We had op- a thing I started called Operation First Floor, where I got uh, all the restaurant owners, first floor restaurants, were being extorted. I got them together, and I said, "Look, this is what I want to do. I'm going to ask my people, my beat police, to go to your restaurants on an ad hoc basis to have their meal there. I'll pay them a meal allowance." You'll have to make up the difference because the meal allowance was pretty lousy. But I want two uniformed police sitting in your restaurant. Fantastic. In the evening when these people don't know which restaurant they're going to be in. And, you know, we had robberies, armed robberies uh, and extortion in first floor restaurants and uh, Chinese restaurants, Vietnamese restaurants from Bankstown, Fairfield, uh, out to other areas around Sydney. We never had one. For a long, long period, we never had any. This is what intrigues me about the way that Cabramatta worked as a station under so much pressure, under such challenging circumstances, if we can put it that way, and to go through a Royal Commission to come out so clean is that I know that your management style was rather hands-off, actually. You're certainly not a micromanager. No, particularly as I had 19 probationary constables to run with that place. A lot of them went on to, to promotion because of what they'd learnt there. They were, they were good operators. But I always believe that you give them their head, provided they do it properly, and allow them to uh, to be what they were sworn to be, be a police officer. And But there was always the understanding that it had to be done properly. And reward people for with just a, a, a consoling comment, you know, great work. You know, don't, we forget to do that. Yeah. I've turned people around that had appalling sick records and, and there were deeper problems with appalling sick records, you know. People don't do it willingly. There's so many officers who end up leaving early on sickness. Yeah, some of that's PTSD and That's whatever. what I mean. And, 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 exactly yeah, what very I mean. Real, it's very real too. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. But, I mean, there's got to be a way to prevent that. You know, there, there's so many officers who, who leave great careers, uh, leave jobs they love because it's not until the PTSD has reached that level of crisis, isn't it? It's not noticed. It's not... It's full on. I mean, if you look at the military, they've got an engagement for a period. They might do several tours and that's their eyeball-to-eyeball duty uh, in, in a dangerous situation. Police do it every day for 30 years, you know, and you don't know what's there. Police do face aggression. 
every day, basically, uh, particularly domestic situation, domestic violence. And mental illness, that's becoming a big issue. I don't know whether it's got anything to do with meth. Oh, you mean the mental illness that police are confronted with on, on the job? Yeah, yeah well, absolutely. they're confronted with them because they... Yeah. Many years ago, uh, people who were confined because they were mentally ill, not, not in prison, but they were confined yeah. to be assisted. You're in a ward, therefore you take your medication. Yeah, we're not supporting our ment- mentally ill, that's for sure. Oh, we put them out on the, we, we put them out on the street yeah. begging in their own excrement to save the state money. And that happened. And, and, of course, who picks up the pieces, the Salvation Army and the police? You know, the police are supposed to understand that and understand how to treat it. Well, you can't if you're facing them and you've... Most gun battles take place within a very short distance. Mm. A, a knife attack and a gun, very short distance. It's not done it over the hillside and, uh, you know, behind a, bro- a, a brick wall. It's, uh, it's done. No, and it's not done with a lot of time to assess, is it? Not a lot of time to see exactly what is in that hand, what kind of knife that is. Well, we had one that uh, we had people getting needle sticks in the day with the, with the AIDS, of course, and then we had... Uh, one incident at the Cabramatta, I remember, where a fellow was approached and uh, he uh, had a broken bottle and he was backing the police back. They were going back as far as they could and he slashed his arms and said, I'm, I'm HIV positive, come and get me. Mm. And he kept at them and kept going at them and they resolved it. But I said to them, I would support you in that circumstance if you had to shoot him. Because yeah. I don't expect you to go and get, a, get blood all over you, you know. So... It's a decision they've got to make in a very split second and that's um, nasty. So naturally you're going to get that sort of pressure constantly hitting, hitting, hitting. You're going to get uh, people leaving early and damaged. It's an incredibly difficult job. What What is the most challenging in your long career? Do you remember? Is there an, an event? Um, I, know, I know that PTSD certainly and those things, they don't sort of work that way oftentimes. It's not the big events that stick with you a lot. But did you ever have to take a break? Did you ever have to take a little couple of days off after anything? No. Typical of detectives when I was a detective. It was uh, when I got ill, but my heart condition, I um, I went off on sick report. and It was the second time in 30 years I'd been off sick. And I had two years accrued sick leave. <laughs> my God. But um, that's the way it was, with particularly with detectives. They had to be there, had to be front up. That's what always amazes me is when you talk to police and, and old coppers where they'll tell you like, oh, I, ha- I had this job and was back at work that afternoon. I was back the next day. Like to us, the rest of us, that's mind-blowing. We're like, we can't believe they didn't say to you, take the week off. You've just had a partner seriously injured or you've just been to a terrible even accident or these really incredible jobs that, that you just front up the next day. Mm. Yeah, and nasty stuff too. Yeah. And um, I had that incident where uh, a couple had been murdered in their home by a neighbour. The husband was chopped up with a machete, shot. The wife came to his aid and she was shot a couple of times, killed. And I had to get the kids, the three kids, and sit them down in the bedroom and tell them their parents had been killed. They got off the bus and I sat them down and very gently had to tell them that their parents were dead inside. They were still in the house, you know. And, uh, they didn't see it, of course, but... Uh, and the little one in, in all innocence just said, asked how the dog was. And then I said, sweetie, the dog's been shot too. Dog dog was shot and the goat had been shot and the water tanks had been shot out. And uh, it was a very, very hard thing to do. It was a very moving thing to do. Was, uh, that one that one affects me a bit. I, I, I Not not tra- traumatically, but um, 
just something I remember because it was a difficult thing to do, you know. It was a very sad thing. But the strange thing is that all the blood and guts that I've seen doesn't really affect me. It's um, And I'm not immured to it. It's not uh, something that I am mm. blasé about. Mm. You know what's what, what it is. You, you respect it. Were you always okay with the blood and guts or was it something that you got more used to? Uh, yeah, I think, uh, well, they used to blood you. They'd, uh, as soon as you were sworn in, they'd take you down to the morgue and show you all the bodies lying all over the place. It used to be disgusting in the old days. It was it was down at the rocks in Sydney and it was near the mining museum and it was just in a very old building, but it was small mm. and there was not enough spaces for them. So they were stacked on top of one another on, on the floor and so two or three high, you know, and I mean, forensically, that's a no-no. You don't do that. But there was no other option, you know. And, um, and when they did build the new morgue, which is now the old morgue, mm. uh, they don't use that anymore, but it was, they built that with the uh, capacity to hold 365 bodies and it was built for an air disaster. It was better because it was clean and it was respectful and so on, you know, but there was just these trays open, you know, like a big storage area and you go in and I, I went I went in and, one occasion with the Granville train disaster and took families in to identify that we had to take all the slide every one of them out. There was 80 bodies in there and more from the normal intake. So it would have been close to 100 bodies, I guess, and uh, pull them all out. But it's that wasn't traumatic. It's traumatic watching the people having to identify, look at them all and then find their own, you know. So, you know, you get those those sort of things. They, they, don't, they don't torment me, but you do remember them. Thank you to our guest today, Alan Leake. And don't forget to check out the show notes and our socials for more information about his books. His most recent is called Rendezvous with Death, Australian Police Slain on Duty in the Early 20th Century. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 Yarn on 13 92 76 or 13 yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. 
If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.